The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. Please take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Jeremiah chapter 31 as we begin this morning's sermon on the subject of baptism. Jeremiah 31. And I'm going to admit that I'm a, a little bit, not in danger with this sermon, but I think the danger within our context with a sermon covering something like baptism is I'm preaching to the choir. I don't think there's going to be much disagreement. This isn't going to be like the controversial message of the year, okay? This has nothing to do with controversy. This is a Baptist church, and it's been a Baptist church for 50 years, and so the pastor's going to stand up here and talk about Baptist principles when it comes to baptism. So I don't think this is going to be the most controversial sermon of the year. I promise you that it won't. That'll be in a couple weeks when we talk about tithing, maybe. Um, (laughs) But this Sunday, we'll be looking at baptism And from Jeremiah 31, at least beginning there. And whether you realize it or not, baptism is an incredibly debated subject. And I think that a lot of the reason why it's debated among different camps and different denominations is because there are several moving parts to what baptism actually is. So it it conjures up a lot of questions because there are several parts to it. For instance, questions like, who should be baptized? Should we be baptizing our infants? Should we even baptize very young children, two or three years old, or four years old who make a profession of faith? Or should we simply baptize only those who are of a mature age, who have made a profession of faith in Christ, trusting in the gospel? But another question is, how should we baptize? What is the the proper mode of baptism? This is a a highly debated question. Is there a biblical ideal when it comes to how we should baptize? Should we take a person and take them to a river, take them to a pond, take them to a lake lake, and dunk them into the water? Or could we bring somebody up and maybe sprinkle some water on their head? Or could we pour some water on their head? So who should we baptize? How should we baptize? But third, what does baptism do? When you think about your own baptism, what did baptism do? do to you or for you? Does baptism have some sort of uh, healing power? Or even from God's perspective, when we are being baptized, as he watches us get baptized, what is going through his mind? What, from his perspective, is he thinking when you are being baptized? But fourth, in spite of all of these other questions that are highly debated within different churches and different denominations, the fourth question that we're going to be looking at this morning anyway is what does baptism have to do with our mission? How does, as we go about spreading the gospel and we preach all these good things that we've been singing about this morning, that Christ is risen from the dead and that means something for every single person who is alive. As we go about in Windsor and China and Jefferson and all these other towns around us and we preach this message and you share the gospel with the people at your work or who you meet in the stores or wherever, how is baptism implemented even in our mission as we go about preaching the gospel to our town and the surrounding areas. But as we begin, I want to begin a little bit with my own testimony in regards to baptism. Baptism has quite truthfully been the bane of my theological existence. 
Many of the things that I believe theologically on, on certain tough things or easier things, whatever, it didn't take half as long to get to as this subject of baptism. I was raised in a Baptist church. Um, I went to a Baptistic college. I was taught to believe the Baptistic understanding that only those who profess Christ should be baptized. And the way that they should be baptized is in immersion being dunked into the water. Yet as I was in college, I began to be heavily influenced by a pastor that was a few hours away and um, even some of my own family that I had been discussing this, this concept of not just um, believer's baptism by immersion, but the possibility of infant baptism and if infant baptism was actually valid. And so I was heavily influenced by those that I was interacting with and I was also heavily influenced by those who had uh, been throughout church history who had done a lot of writing. And so you can imagine... if. Even if you go to my library right now, I mean, probably over 70% of the books that I have have been written by people who believe in infant baptism, who believe in baptizing babies. And so when you spend a lot of time in those books and reading them and studying them, it becomes quite compelling as you're reading them to be like, wow, all of these guys believed it. Maybe I should consider believing it too. And so the argument for infant baptism became quite powerful for me, even as you look at the church history in the the last 2,000 years of the history of the church, by and large, the vast majority of it contains infant baptism. And so as my theology began to grow and develop, I began to see a continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. I began to see that the old covenant people of God, the Jews, their covenant included their children. So they would circumcise their children and the the children would be part of that old covenant. And so on the new covenant side, if, if God hadn't clearly removed children from the new covenant, then the children of the new covenant should be long as well within it. And so as you consider that old covenant community, the people of Israel, what marked them off again as belonging to God was their circumcision. So they would circumcise the infants of the members of the old covenant. And then when you come over to the new covenant, what marks you off as part of the new covenant community? Your baptism. And so the logic follows that if children of old covenant members were circumcised, then the children of new covenant members should be baptized. And so those are at least some very quick and general reasons why six years ago I became an advocate and a believer in infant baptism, in pedo-baptism. And after about a year of believing it, I felt really compelled through Scripture that I was actually in error over my position, believing that babies should be baptized. And much of this sermon, at least in a a lighter way, will uh, reflect why I moved away from infant baptism. But it does go even deeper than what we'll talk about this morning. But I open with that personal illustration first to help you understand, well first, that this is not an easy slam dunk conversation. This is something that has been debated for a very long time. And the second reason is this has been a very real struggle for me in my own theological formation and understanding of what God's word has to say in regard to baptism. But I want to address this topic by looking at these four questions that I mentioned earlier. Who should be baptized? How should we baptize? What does baptism do? And what does baptism have to do with our mission? So if you're in Jeremiah chapter 31, look with me beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So you may be thinking as we come into the subject of baptism, that baptism is a New Testament idea, not an Old Testament. So why are we in the prophet of Jeremiah? But this passage, although it might not seem immediately relevant, is actually one of the passages that is at the the center of this whole debate because it directly speaks of those who belong to the new covenant. And those who belong to the new covenant should be Baptized. So if you believe that children belong in the new covenant, then you would believe that they should be baptized. But if you don't believe that they should be part of the new covenant, then you wouldn't want them to be baptized. So within this prophetic book of Jeremiah, he is clear hundreds of years before it's all going to happen that there is going to be a covenant that God makes. And what is peculiar about this covenant, it is unlike the old covenant. So that old covenant that God had instated with Israel at Sinai, the new covenant is going to be unlike that one, Jeremiah says. And so you remember the old covenant was very much based on law. If you obey God, if you obey the law, then you're going to be blessed. But if you disobey the law, then you are going to be cursed. So the law had this very external position within the lives of the Jewish community, although the goal was that the law would be written on their hearts. But for them, it was very external. But within Jeremiah 31, particularly in verse 33, the law is going to be written on the hearts of those who make up the new covenant. And so the law would not be externalized within the new covenant. The law would actually be internalized. So he goes on to say in verse 34 that the members of the new covenant, they would all know the Lord. And that is distinct from the Old Covenant. Because within the Old Covenant, they did not all know the Lord. The Old Covenant was filled with many, 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 many unbelievers. Yet the New Covenant, they're all going to know the Lord. They're all going to have their sins forgiven. So this is really significant to our understanding of baptism. Because the New Covenant that is prophesied about here in Jeremiah 31 is going to contain only those who have the law of God written upon their heart. It's only going to be filled with those who have had their sins forgiven. And so when Jesus comes to the earth hundreds of years after Jeremiah 31 is written, we see that through his person and work, the New Covenant is established. So you remember with me, Jesus with his disciples And they're sitting around that that last supper. And what does he say about the cup? He says, take this cup. It is the new covenant in my blood. And so through the work of Jesus, the new covenant was established. And even now, according to the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. That now he, he is the mediator between God and Man, And so Jeremiah 31 is vital to the discussion of baptism because it tells us who belongs to the new covenant, which tells us who should be baptized. 
The people that should be baptized, according to this passage, are those who have God's law written on their heart, those who know the Lord, those who have had their sins forgiven. These are the people that belong to the new covenant, and those are the people that need to be baptized. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to flip around a little bit. There's going to be some verses that will be on the screen behind me. But turn over to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at these different passages. But in this passage, we're going to see uh, this idea of baptism fleshed out a little more within the context of what's called the new covenant and the establishment of the church. So at this point, within the, or right before the book of Acts, Jesus has died on the cross. He was buried. He's risen. At the, at the very beginning of the book of Acts, He ascends into heaven. And so here they are in Acts chapter 2 at this day called Pentecost, which is a very significant day for the Jewish community, and it would be uh, a very, very significant day um, for the church community. But you remember that the Spirit of God was rushing upon the people in this chapter. The people begin to speak in a way that those of other tongues or those who spoke other languages that they could understand. But then in verse 14, the Apostle Peter stands up and he begins to preach. And he preaches Jesus from the Old Testament and he speaks of all of the things that Jesus had done. All of his miracles and all of his works. He was talking about Christ to these people that had crucified him. And as Peter continues to preach, the people, they're convicted over their sin. And look with me at verse 37 in Acts chapter 2 to see how the people respond to Peter's preaching. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all those who are afar off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized and there were added to that day or there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so they're listening to Peter's sermon. They're cut to the heart. It's another way of saying that they were convicted over their sin. They realize what they have done to Christ and they look to Peter in light of his preaching, in light of this great truth, and they just say, well, what, what should we do? And this should really be always our response to whenever we hear the word of God. In light of God's word, what, what, what do I do? I, I need to be changed. I'm convicted over this. God, what should I do? But Peter gives them very clear directions. To his Jewish brothers and sisters, he says, repent and be baptized. But remember, we're considering who should be baptized. Jeremiah 31 indicates that all those who are part of the new covenant will know the Lord. They'll have their sins forgiven. And this passage in verse 41 is very clear on who should be baptized as well. Look there again. Those who received his word were baptized. So who were baptized? Those who were there who received the word of God. Not the infants who were there. Can an infant receive the word? Does an infant have the capacity to receive God's word? Do they have the capability of repenting of their sins? They do not. And therefore they should not be baptized until God does that work within them. Even a quick survey of a a couple passages like this reveals the obvious answer of who should be baptized. Those who have received the forgiveness of their sins. When they hear God's word in Acts 2, Peter says, 
repent, receive the forgiveness of sins through Christ. These are the ones who are genuinely members of the new covenant. And so that is the first question. Who should be baptized? But second, how should we be baptized? Turn with me again to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3. I want to flip around a lot because I want you to see what the whole Bible has to say about it. But as Baptists, the understanding that is that we immerse people in water upon profession of faith. But as I mentioned before, there are those who would say that you need to, the sprinkling or pouring would be an acceptable way to baptize. But let's look at what the Bible has to say, beginning with Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus goes to John the Baptist, which basically means John the baptizer, who is in the wilderness in order to be baptized by him. And you see in verse 16 that they were in water. Jesus had to go up from the water. So how was Jesus himself baptized? Well, he went into the water, indicating an immersion. We'll look at more examples in a minute, but a lot of the problem comes down to the fact that the word baptize is what's called a transliteration. Which simply means that the English word baptize is brought over from the Greek word baptizo. Sounds the same, right? Baptizo, baptize. So it's a transliteration. It wasn't fully translated into a word of English that we would say immersion or plunge or dip. And so throughout the whole Greek New Testament, baptizo is used, which in almost every circumstance means to immerse or to dip. So really, if our English translations translated the word into what it means, opposed to a transliteration, then there would be no confusion, because instead of using the word baptize, they would use the word immerse, or to dip. But look at more examples with me. Even consider John the Baptist and his own ministry of baptism in John 3. It says this, John was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. So why was John baptizing at Anan? Because there was a bunch of water, right? You don't need a lot of water to sprinkle or to pour water on people's head. You need a lot of water to immerse. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 6, again, John the, Bapti- John the Baptist in his baptizing, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so again, they needed a river. Why? Because they needed to be plunged within the river. Do you remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8? Philip is swept along to minister to this Ethiopian man who is reading a scroll from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip explains what the text is saying, and the Ethiopian man gets saved, and he is immediately baptized. This is what it says. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. 
So here they are, the Ethiopian man gets saved, he sees the water, he knows of his need to be baptized, and they jump into the water, and they get baptized. But even beyond these illustrations, I think even theologically speaking, immersion is easily the best way to demonstrate what has happened within us in regards to the gospel transformation that has taken place. Consider with me even the great beginning of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So if in our baptism we are looking to emulate the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, which mode of baptism best represents the burial of Jesus? Well, immersion does. Far better than pouring or sprinkling. You you take a person and you bury them into the water and then they are raised out of the water to walk in newness of life. And so this is so important. Your baptism is so important. Because it identifies you with the gospel. You have died to yourself. You have died with Christ. And you have been raised with him. And your baptism represents what has happened to you on the inside. This is why only those who have believed in the gospel should be baptized. Because baptism identifies you with the gospel. So who should be baptized? We should only baptize those who have professed faith those who have believed in the gospel. How should we baptize? We should baptize by immersion in the water, which represents the gospel itself. And the third question we're looking at is this. What does baptism do? Look, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. This won't be on the screen. This will just be as you turn there. 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about this question. What does baptism do? There's so many misconceptions about what it actually does. But we must be very clear on at least what it does not do. Baptism does not save you. It cannot. Cannot be any more emphatic about that. Baptism does not save you. But what it does is it represents that you've been saved. Look with me at 1 Peter 3 beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Oh, wait a minute. Let's stop there. I just said that baptism does not save you. Peter says that baptism does save you. Let's keep reading in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So what's going on here in 1 Peter 3? Peter correlates baptism with the Noah's Ark scenario from back in the beginning of Genesis 
And one helpful study Bible said this. In both instances, believers are saved through the waters of judgment since baptism portrays salvation through judgment. The mere mechanical act of baptism does not save. For Peter explicitly says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, meaning that the passing of water over the body does not cleanse anyone. Baptism saves you because it represents inward faith as evidenced by one's appeal to God for the forgiveness of sins, as Peter says, for a good conscience. So no, baptism does not save you, but what it represents does save you. Baptism represents the inward reality that you've been saved, that that God has reached out and that he has saved you. So baptism doesn't spiritually heal you of your sin problem, Only faith can do that. And your baptism is an outward demonstration of the inward fact that you have truly been born again. So what does baptism do? Baptism shows that God has saved you from your sin. It demonstrates the fact that he has cleansed you by faith of your sin. But it also gives the opportunity for a new believer in Christ to go public with their faith. One person put it this way. It's Baptism is kind of like putting on the team jersey and really makes you a part of the team. It's really going public to demonstrate and to show that God has indeed saved you. There are really, when you even think about it in the context of the church, we were able to have a couple baptisms last year. I anticipate having a few more this year. And there's really not much more within the context of a church that is as exciting as baptisms, right? It's right up there with having babies, baptisms, things like that. It's just so exciting to have baptisms because what does it represent? That God is saving people, that God is still on the move, that God is working. Which brings us to the fourth question. What does baptism have to do with our mission? Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And what do you do? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you realize that part of how we make disciples is through baptism. Baptism is a crucial part of our mission. In these final words of Jesus, he's standing before his disciples and he tells them to go and to make disciples, not just of the Jewish nation, but of all nations. The gospel was going to spread like wildfire throughout the whole world. People were going to be converted and the disciples were commanded to baptize other new disciples that they had made from various nations. And so they, here they are around 2,000 years ago. They obeyed the command of Christ. They baptized the disciples. And here we are thousands of miles away from where Jesus gave this command to the apostles and we're still obeying what he told them to do. Making disciples and baptizing them. Baptism has everything to do with our mission as Jesus followers and as a church. But maybe this whole discussion of baptism is a little bit of a cart before the horse for some. We have not yet trusted in Christ, so yet there is no need for baptism for you. You need to confess that Jesus is the Lord, acknowledging your own sin before Him, to trust Him, to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you on the inside. Have you genuinely experienced the forgiveness of your sins? Have you trusted in Christ alone? 
And if you haven't, you need to. But if you have and you haven't been baptized, then you need to be baptized. I simply ask the question, why? If you believe in Jesus and you have not been biblically baptized, why? Why would you put off what the Lord clearly desires for all of his disciples? If you're refusing to follow the Lord in baptism, then really what's going on is active disobedience. This is a command of Christ. This is not a suggestion. Baptism is an act of obedience to God's word. And so to refuse God, to refuse his word, is to disobey. Oftentimes I talk with people about baptism, and they give different reasons as to why they don't think that they should be baptized. They believe, they genuinely believe, and they have repented, but there are often different responses as to why they don't think that they should be baptized. One of the responses, they feel like they need to do something for God before they need to be baptized. That They need to demonstrate somehow that they love the Lord, but what they're not realizing is that their baptism would show this quite well. But another reason people often give for not being baptized is that they don't feel ready. They don't feel like it's their time. But the Bible never talks about feelings when it talks about baptism. It says to repent and to be baptized. It's very simple. Have you repented? If so, you need to be baptized. So the four questions. Who should be baptized? Those who have repented and become part of the new covenant. How should we baptize? We should baptize by immersion, which demonstrates the gospel itself and is found in the biblical examples. What does baptism do? It does not save, and it should not give us some kind of clarity of conscience in terms of somebody who has been baptized. But baptism represents what has gone on in our own heart, that God has cleansed us from our sins. And fourth, what does baptism have to do with our mission? It is part of the way that we make disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to dive into your word and to hopefully understand this subject better. We pray that as a church that we'll be genuinely unified on this. And Lord, we pray that you will bring those forward who have repented, who do need to be baptized. We look forward to joyful days this coming summer where we can see uh, the, the evidence that you are still working in the lives of individuals, that you are still saving, you are still cleansing people of unrighteousness and baptizing, representing what you have done within others' hearts. We look forward to this. We thank you for what you're doing within our presence. And we pray, Lord, that you'll continue as we go about spreading your gospel and baptizing, that you'll be honored in our ministry here. pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge them or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242-0126 or email us at wcfmaine at gmail.com. Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship, 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine, 04363. Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.